Okay. Tonight, Zephaniah chapter 3. This short prophet, uh, we, we were there last, the first two chapters last week. And I'll tell you what, uh, he pictured the day of the Lord like no other prophet does. You know, you have Joel, probably the other prophet that comes close, that talks about the day of the Lord in, in vivid uh, description. But remember the immediate reference that we were looking at is Zephaniah, is the approaching judgment. And this is the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. Babylonian, the Babylonian invasion, uh, the Chaldeans were, were on the rise. Remember the Assyrians had... Uh, it's kind of interesting because the Assyrians, we read, in, you know, Nam and, and, and Jonah went to Nineveh, which was an Assyrian city and so forth. We read about their brutality. They were, they were brutal and they were swift. And yet they were on, kind of on the downside when the Babylonian uh, Empire started spreading its wings, so to speak. You know, you read in the book of Daniel. And, you know, the, the third and the fourth chapter, the fifth chapter, and you see how... Well, the fifth chapter is Belshazzar, the grandson of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But the first four chapters, Nebuchadnezzar is the main character. And you can see in their hands of how huge his kingdom was, expanding constantly. Well, as it was expanding constantly, the Syrians were on the way out. But guess who was on the way out? The Medes and the Persians. We don't have time to get into that tonight, but that's interesting. But the immediate reference here that Zephaniah was prophesying very poignantly, was a reference, again, to the approaching judgment that God was using the uh, Babylonians to use. The larger picture, which will just be, we're getting to the third chapter tonight, and then going to Haggai, but the larger picture was of the last days, the reference to the day of the Lord, which, again, Zephaniah pictured in, in just uh, uh, terrible, and I, I mean terrible by, by awesome language. Um, and we saw in chapter 2 how Zephaniah was calling desperately, and it's the call of the Lord to the repentance for his people. We see that all through the mind of prophets. How God not only uses other uh, larger, fiercer nations to judge his people or to use it as judgment, but he always capulates that with a call of repentance, a sincere call to repentance. Not a follow me through lips only and I don't care about your heart. See, that doesn't work. And that's where a lot of God's people have fallen off. The true ones, the remnant that did come back in repentance. You know, they still might have gone into captivity, but they were preserved their captivity. Daniel, uh, his three friends, for example. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, coming back from the, from the captivity of the seven years of Babylon and so forth. God always has his remnant. And in the remnant, they turn with their heart. They rend their hearts, as Joel says, and not their garments. Jesus said, you worship me through the lips, but your heart is far from me. So God always works through that remnant. So when we understand that in these prophets, we see the seed of the remnant, that whole prophecy starts coming out. Then when we're going to get to Zechariah, I can't wait. Wow, this is going to be a time of, of just kind of putting all this together. God's remnant will be saved in the tribulation period. The time of Jacob's trouble lasts three and a half years by Christ himself. Only a third will be saved. Paul calls it all of Israel in, in Romans chapter 11. All Israel will be saved. All the remnant will be saved. The true Israel, the true seed of Abraham, 
it, it's ex- absolutely wonderful. Tonight, we're going to end this wonderful prophet Zephaniah with the fact of it's talking about basically the real state of Israel and that the captivity will come. We'll also see the future judgment of Gentiles. And ultimately, we're going to end with the, with the remnant of God's people in the kingdom. Do you know what it means to, when we talk about a theriotic kingdom? What that means is God's rule over the nations. God rules, he has rule of government that he institutes and he rules. Adam was to rule in that sort of government. Adam lost it through sin and so forth. Well, when this kingdom comes in, it's the Jewish people that are going to be the executors of that theoretic kingdom of of that thousand-year reign or that thousand-year millennium. Jesus said in He said, you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and so forth. So, when that kingdom is set up, it's it's interesting to see that all the nations of the earth that have scorned Israel, and that have ultimately come together against Israel in that campaign called Armageddon, headed by Satan, Satan will bring all the... See, Satan must get rid of the Jews, because what he ultimately wants to do is not only usurp the throne of God, but he wants to be he wants to be king. He wants to be the ruler of the earth and the ruler of the heavens. But he knows he can't be the ruler of the heavens because he get kicked out. And excuse me, kicked out in Revelation chapter twelve. We see he kicked out, and where God makes a declaration: "Woe to you, of the inhabitants of the earth!" Before Satan is coming down, he's full of wrath because he knows his time is short. So he must get rid of the Jewish people. Because he knows if he cannot, and that they turn to their Messiah in repentance, that they are the ones that are going to be ruling for Christ in this kingdom, exercising this theoretic kingdom that was not only promised uh, through, through the prophets, but ultimately through the Davidic line. Very important. So he must get rid of the Jews. And I'm saying something really quick before we get into this. Why is the supposedly Christian church helping him to do that? Now, the only correct response, see, I see Joel there shaking his head. Thank you. That's absurd. We have this, this whole idea that God has done with the Jewish people. Now, where do you think that comes from? Satan himself. That is anti-Semitic rhetoric. And this is what we're dealing with here. Let's get into Zephaniah 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. To the oppressing city, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent. I love that word. Treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. You know... Wolves in the Bible are never classified as anything good. Wolves in the New Testament are grievous, ravenous, 
They they in, they pretend to be something else. You know, wolves in sheep's clothing. They do one thing, but they're really another. They don't leave a bone until morning. In other words, what they do, they do well. Their prophets are insolent. Insolent means disobedient to authority. God's authority. The prophets are insolent. We are bounding in the prophets today that are insolent. Treacherous people, again, her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Look at verse 5. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. We all know Lamentations chapter 3. Look at verse 5 again. God is righteous. It's in stark contrast to the people that claim to know him and yet do violence not only to his law, but speak against his authority. But every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. Lamentations 3.22, though the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. That's another thing about being making short accounts with God. Are you sinning? Have you have you been sinning? Have you done something? Make short accounts with God and, and, and confess it. Immediate confession keeps that fellowship going, and because every morning God is anxious that you would come to Him in His way. He has made you a new creation, and you have defilement on you because of sin. Oh, how God wants to wash you with His Word. Where do we find Him in the morning or whenever? We find Him in His Word. We come in confession that the defilement is, is wiped clean, and we, again, go on with our fellowship with God. We are already sons and daughters. We are already experiencing a wonderful position. Why are we going to stay away because of, of sin? Guilt. Wow, let's talk about guilt for a minute. Does guilt have a part in the Christian life? I want to ask you that. Don't answer it out loud. Answer in your heart. I'll tell you what the Bible says. Well, what does guilt grab your life? If you have guilt writing in your life, my friend, you don't need to at all. No guilt needs to be a part of the armor or the integrity of the Christian life because Jesus Christ died to remove your guilt. See, the enemy will put guilt on your life. Jesus said an amazing thing. He said that my sheep know me. They know my voice and they follow me. They won't hear the voice of a hireling because they don't understand or they don't know the voice of, of, of strangers. The voice of Jesus Christ is never one of condemnation. It's never one of guilt. What it is, is the one of longing that you would come to Him and confess where you've been, what you've done, so that He might show how just and righteous He is and forgive you of all that. Again, we are forgiven for what the law could ever say against us. The law, therefore, has no dominion over us at all. We are under grace, not law. But this defilement of sin comes in, 
We immediately should be able to come to our Heavenly Father because the Bible says that we go to the throne of God. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not, oh, wow, I've sinned again. It's going to take me some while to really undo this one. No. We come to God in confession, 1 John 1, 9 and so forth, because Christ has shed his blood and paved the way. So if you have guilt in your life today, now is the time to get rid of it. You don't have to carry that around. And the prophets in verse 4, they were, they were, they were insolent. They despised authority. They were treacherous people. This is what God was dealing with. They've done violence to the law. But the Lord, He's righteous in there. Every morning He comes to you, wanting, yearning that we would be uh, presented before Him as His own. I'll be honest with you folks, I don't understand that. I don't understand a wonderful, magnificent God that I can't even begin to fathom how marvelous He is. The Bible says that through all eternity, we will be learning of Him and, and, and trying to, well, for the joy that is set before Him, Jesus said He endured the cross, despising the shame, because He saw the joy that before Him. You know what that joy was? You and I coming into the kingdom, living with Him forever, experiencing new heavens and new earth, experiencing Him for eternity. And we're allowing guilt to run in our life to where we, we go sometimes days without fellowship with Christ because of our guilt that, that holds us. We're no creation. <clears throat> he comes every morning. Look at verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate. With none passing by, their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely will fear me. You will receive instructions so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds, despite they did this. Now, I ask you a question before we go on and finish this last chapter real, real and quickly. Does God say, well, that's it. I stop loving you now. No. God is love. John says in his first letter. God is love. God is not conditional love. God is love. Well, wait a minute. Well, well, I can't understand how God of love can punish. That's what love does. Love cares about right or wrong. Love cares about justice. Love cares about righteousness and holiness and, and good and decent so love must punish wrong. That's what love does. If you don't punish your kids, you don't love them, the Bible says. That's pretty strong. I have talked to men that have had uh, their kids are grown and gone and say, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have been such a friend to my kids. My kids didn't need a friend at home. They needed a disciplinarian, which I totally agree there's time to have be friends with your kids after they get out of the house. They need discipline, discipline out of love. And the Bible says that if you don't love your kids, you're not going to discipline them, vice versa. 
God's love never ends. Despite everything that he did for them, Jesus said the same thing and echoes throughout the prophets. What more could I have done for my vineyard? What more could I have done? And I, I, I did everything I could. I went to seek good fruit, and what did I find? Wild grapes, sour grapes, worthless grapes. Wow. Verse 8 says, Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord. Wait for me until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations, to assemble to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth will be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. My friends, pour on them. This is the battle of Armageddon. He is jealous for his people. He's a jealous God. And it's not the jealousy that we see in the society today. It's a jealousy. It's a godly jealousy of love. It's a jealousy of, I love so much, my people are continually going astray, and I love them, and it hurts. That's where we get the term long-suffering. We bear under a load that hurts patiently, and that's the jealousy that God has. And he always in the prophets is found going, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish you if you continue going your way. And then he'll go out to the end of times. He says, I'm going to pour on my indignation. You know, because see, that's what the battle of Armageddon is really all about. It ultimately turns in hatred on the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the surrounding nations, because remember, uh, Satan must get rid of the Jews. He must get rid of them. And ultimately, Jerusalem will be surrounded Israel will be surrounded by the angry armies of the world, headed by Satan himself, and they will cry in repentance to their Messiah. And when they do that, they will see him coming down, and they will mourn for him. And the him is the one that they crucified year, thousands of years before, and they will mourn because they realized what they had done. And yet the deliverer will come out of Zion, and all Israel will be saved. And Armageddon will be taken care of. Not by nuclear weapons, not by technology. The Bible says that Armageddon will be taken by the sword that comes out of the, of the mouth of the Lord himself. His word. And his people will be saved. Wow. That is, that is absolutely phenomenal. Look at verse 9. We're going into a little different section here about the, the, the cleansing, if you will, of Israel. For then I will restore to the people a pure language. They will call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering in that day. You shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgressed against me. This is true cleansing, by the way, folks. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 13, the remnant. This is a key to this chapter. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down 
and no one shall make them afraid. You know, we, we mentioned this last week, but in this verse 13 here, Isaiah, in Isaiah 1.9, makes a great statement. He said, except the Lord of hosts has left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. There were no survivors, save Lot and his two daughters. And even then, the two daughters had incest with Lot and, and Moab, and Ammon came out from that, which were two nations, if you will, two peoples that were constantly a problem for Israel. See, Satan is always trying to get Israel. Always. That's why they must return in repentance. That's why they must cry out to their Savior, uh, uh, their Messiah, to save them. Let me read something, though, to you. I just, I, I think this is just wonderful stuff. This is out of Ezekiel chapter 34. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but uh, talking about the remnant, okay? Talking about the fact that, remember, that God is going to feed them, and they're going to lie down, and none are going to make them afraid. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34, I'm going to read a couple passages. This is the Lord talking. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. They shall lie down in good fold and be rich and food on the pastures of the mountains in Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land. They shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. They shall, make, they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. Thus they shall know that I am the Lord their God, and with them, and they shall be the house of Israel. My people, says the Lord, you are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord. This is what's going to be Israel's plight in the, in the kingdom. But first, they are going to go through a time of unprecedented trouble. Sing, O daughter of Zion, verse 14, Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You almost want to start jumping up and down. The king is in the midst. You shall see disaster no more. Listen, when, when Christ is, is reigning as king, there is no disaster. No evil shall befall your tent. They're going to see this physically. They're going to be in a kingdom 
where they will finally know no enemies. They will know no disaster, no terror. They will lie down safely and flourish. Wow. We're already flourishing with them. We will be with them coming back in Armageddon. We will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We will have new bodies like unto his. We will be with him. We will have been, been the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will have been before him to get our rewards. And we, we have been to the Father's house. We will be coming back with him. We will be co-reigning with him in the kingdom. We are going to be anticipating. Can you imagine this? Let me just paint this picture. Can you imagine being with Jesus Christ, seeing the glorious one, that you spent your whole life worshiping and learning of and walking and, and, and telling about and hoping that people would come to him for forgiveness of sins, finally seeing the glorious one and knowing that he shortly, not only is going to put Satan, like Paul says in Romans 16, crushing him under your feet, but knowing that this glorious one is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Can you imagine that? Talk about anticipation. If he is saying these wonderful things to his people, Israel, that have had such a long time of persecution and annihilation and being scattered and everything else, what is it going to be for us to witness our God creating a new heavens and new earth? You know, if you read in the New Testament what he's done for you and I, not only forgiven us of our sins, has made us his inheritance. So again, in verse 14, sing. I can't, I want to read these things again. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Absolutely they're going to sing. Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see no disaster, or excuse me, you shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, verse 16, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with His love. The Mighty One will say, verse 17 is just an absolute, uh, it is a dialogue of our God. He's in our midst. He's going to be in their midst. He's the Mighty One He will save. He will rejoice over them with gladness. He will quiet them with His love. You have fears and anxieties today. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And that is exactly what He's going to do to the remnant of Israel. That turn Him with all their heart. You know? Or as Joel says, that they render their heart, not their garments. Repentance is, is, is so important to understand. And Satan does a great job into diffusing what repentance really means. Repentance means to turn to life. 
It means to turn to the one that gives life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are greatly mistaken. God is the God of the living and not the dead. You, if you have done deeds of darkness and you're in sin, return. That's what repentance means. Turn from darkness, turn from sin, turn from death to life. That's what repentance means. It's not a drudgery. It's, it's something that God requires because he is who he is. But it's for our good and his glory. You show me a man or woman that repents. And I'll show you a man or woman that walks in power. And walks in joy. Walks in safety. Walks in confidence. But Satan has done a great job to take this word repentance and turn it around. Israel's in the kingdom. Now, God's rejoicing over them. He's, he's shouting over them. Let's read the rest of this, and then we'll, we have a few comments, and we'll go into Haggai real quick. But look at verse 18. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Symbolic language here. Behold, at that time I will dwell, or excuse me, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. In verse 20, at that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. You know what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 19. He says this, he says, And that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made, in praise, in name, and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. God's word is so true. We can bank on it every time. Listen to what Isaiah says in the first five verses of the second chapter. He says, And the word of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and you shall be exalted above the hills. And all the nations shall flow into it. <laughs> Many people shall come and say, Come. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, in Psalm 46, where, where God says, Be still and know that I am God. The New Agers and everything take that out to say, Be still and know that I am God, which is wrong. What he's doing in context, he is ceasing all the wars of the ends of the earth to cease. Be still and know that I'm God. It's a prophetic utterance that God is the only one that's going to put war to an end. He's the only one that can establish righteousness that will endure forever. He's allowed man free will 
to reign in that will for however long he has done that. But it will all come to an end. And guess who's going to be in there executing his kingdom? None other than the, what people call the vermin of the earth today, but the Jewish people, the apple of his eye. That is the power of the prophetic word, folks. And that is exciting to me. <clears throat> I love it. This next prophet that we get into, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Haggai, Haggai, you know, that's one thing about Jewish names, or excuse me, Hebrew names, is that it's a lot like the French dialect, and the fact that if you have that rolling of the tongue in that correct dialect, you can more closely associate with what they really mean by their names. It's more so with Hebrew names. They all have their different titles and different names. <clears throat> but I just want to say this, uh, as far as this prophet Haggai is a little bit different, okay? He wrote in about 520 B.C., he was basically an, an after an exile prophet, if you will. He prophesied to the remnant that were coming out of the Babylonian captivity. So we have a little bit different flavor here. He was, he was uh, a contemporary of Zechariah, which we'll be getting into. King uh, Darius of the Media Persia, he was a king. Darius, and in fact, he was one of the last kings that Daniel had um, been associated with. Remember, I had said that as the Babylonian uh, Empire was diminishing because of the Medes and the Persians. Remember, in the second chapter of Daniel, where he has that image, you have the head of gold, which is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. Remember, and then you have the, the chest. And up here of silver, which is the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which we're looking at here, the, the empire that was there when the, when the exile came, the end of the 70 years. Then you have, for a short time after that, you have the Grecian Empire, that, that the, the belly, if you will, of bronze, which lasted for a very short time under Alexander the Great and so forth. And then we'll be getting into, as we go into the putting these prophets together, as we get into Zechariah and so forth, we start seeing that again we see that the leg of, um, of iron, the two legs, eastern and west, western, legs of iron, and then more pointedly you get down to the toes, ten toes of iron mixed with the clay. And we'll get into that as we get into the, the, the tribulation period, the Antichrist. We'll be going back to Daniel more and more as we get into Zechariah. But it's interesting to note that it's King Darius, basically Darius, if you will, excuse me, that changed the law, so to speak, so that the Jews could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And to get a chronologically an order of this, if you will, we go back to the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah really give a, a, a rounded picture. Nehemiah, excuse me, went back and, and, and was, was concentrated basically in the wall surrounding Jerusalem for more defense reasons. Um, Ezra was, was involved in the temple and, and, and rebuilding the temple and so forth. The book of Ezra, again, contains the account of what happened here. This book here was written to encourage the disheartened exiles to carry on with the temple. One of the things that I wanted to look at real just briefly tonight 
is not only the the prophetic utterance and what was going on at that time, but also gleaning ourselves. You know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing here very pointedly, God is saying, you know, your temple is, is being paneled. Your temple is being decked out. Your, your temple is being very sought after. Well, mine lays waste. The lethargic, the apathy that was, was, was coming out of this exile was constantly being uh, exhorted to carry on by these prophets, by Haggai and so forth, exhorted to carry on. You can also see the fact that if you look at the first four chapters of Zechariah, which we're getting into, we see Zerubbabel, and we also see Joshua. Isn't Joshua the son of Nun? As in the book of Joshua, there was a high priest. And when we read in Zechariah what, what Zerubbabel was witnessing, that the angel of the Lord was decking out Joshua, the high priest, taking off his clothes, filthy clothes and putting him on, on good clothes, putting a turban upon his head and so forth. We not only see that of what's going to happen in, in the, uh, to the Jewish people in the end times, we're also going to see the very pointed picture of us. <clears throat> Again, we, don't, we want to keep that separation of the church and Israel, but we also want to glean the spiritual truth from the, from the Word of God. The apathy of most of these Jews is very obvious when we see that in verse 2 of chapter 1. So that's just a little bit of overview of, of this book, this very short book, only two chapters, but uh, very pointed. In fact, some commentators say that this, out of, mo out of more, any of the other prophets, was the most pointed that they can pinpoint at the time of writing, based on Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah and so forth. So in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, or Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Joazadak, the high priest. Now again, we see both Zerubbabel and Joshua in the first four chapters, mainly the first three chapters of Zechariah. And when we get into that, we'll... We'll reference back. It's very interesting. God is working, working here. We got to understand here. When when Nebuchadnezzar came in and, they, and to to Judah, to Judea, and he destroyed it and carried the captive. God was was refining his remnant. God was was they were punished. You know why they went into seven year captivity? Because they refused. They were insolent. Remember, just like. Zephaniah said they were insolent to the law. They didn't care about God's Sabbath for the land. Every six years you could produce, and the seventh year was a Sabbath unto the Lord. And they refused that. For every Sabbath, God said that you did not give to me, I will cause you to go into captivity, which makes the 70 years captivity in Babylon. So when they were coming back, God's remnant was being refined. It was, it was, it was coming down. And yet there were still some of those in that remnant, of the fringes of it, that were lagging behind. And this is where we're at here. Verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Verse 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, 
and this temple to lie in ruins? Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's going to say that a couple times. <clears throat> the people are coming out and, and saying, hey, you know what, hey, it's... It, you know what? We have a lot of opposition. You know, we have we have we have Sanballat, and um, we read Nehemiah, Sanballat, and his hosts that were constantly uh, preventing or trying to prevent Nehemiah and the remnant from building the wall. Remember, and uh, I believe you know they had basically a sword in one hand, a a, uh, a scaffold in the other. Uh, they each were building the wall that was allotted to them, probably in front of their dwelling or whatever, so they got the wall done in, in time. But yet there was opposition. So there was opposition here between lazy, lethargic people of building the temple, of rebuilding the temple. After all, when the, the temple of Solomon was destroyed, that was a magnificent temple. It must have been a great discouragement. Maybe, I don't know. Discouragement does a lot in the Christian life as well as, as a life associated with God. Because sometimes we don't actually see the bigger picture of things. But nonetheless, they were saying, ah, you know, rebuilding the temple, well, yeah. God had allowed this king, this media Persia king, to literally change the law so that the Jews could come back to rebuild the temple. And you had lethargicness in there. God simply says, you have time to rebuild your, your house, Your temple, so to speak, your house is decked out. You take great pains with it. But look at my house. It's lying in ruins. Verse 5, again, now therefore this says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know, I just want to say something real quick and, and something for us to think about. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not dwell with temples made with hands, Paul says. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yes, some of our tongues are stinging. Some of them are full of lies. Some of them are full of deceit. Some of you are full of sarcasm? Some of your minds are wandering in adulterous ways and, and, and you know your thought life is in the garbage can. Some of us walk some days as if our life counts and, and God doesn't have a part of it. We could go on and on. How is our house being, you know, how is this temple? This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It matters to God. I want an ungrieved spirit to dwell within me. I want an unquenched spirit to dwell within me. I want God to, to do whatever He wants to in His temple. <clears throat> Some of us care more about our homes than we do our the temple that we are of the Lord. And again, we don't want to spiritualize anything. But this is what grieves God. 
And if you think I'm far off, look at verse 6. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earn wages to be put into a bag with holes. Now, I had about 10 to 12 references that we could bring up. But the only the best one I could come up with is Isaiah chapter 55. That one, that, for that chapter, it starts out, they said, Ho, oh, ye, come to the waters. He has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price, without cost. Why would you put money on that which does not do you any good? Why do you eat bread which doesn't satisfy? You put, you put money in your purse and it's got holes in it and so forth. Again, remember, God says, consider your ways. And Nehemiah was a, I consider Nehemiah a watchman, personally. He was, he was commissioned by the Lord to not only encourage, but to rebuke the, the, the people that were coming out, to bring them forth. You know, some people have the attitude, oh, well, that's just the way they are. You know, that's just the way that some Christians are. Is that the way God is? God is never like that. God never leaves you to wallow in, in anything other than His good, other than His will. God never leaves you wallowing in your sin or wallowing in your guilt. He never leaves you complacent. Are you complacent today? He never leaves you there. You are fighting to stay there. He never leaves you there. He wants to bring you out. He wants to bring you out and, and the fullness of life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, and this is a very misunderstood passage. He says, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. You can't get more abundant than eternal life. Eternal life is just that, eternal life. But he came to give that life more abundantly. And we, in our lethargicness and our apathy, Choose to stay in a complacent attitude in standing before God. And my friend, it's, it's grieving the Lord and stunning our growth. We are living as subservient to what Christ died to give us. Does that make sense? Think about this. It's time to move on. It's time to, to get on with it. And that's the, the cry of the prophet here. God says, consider your ways. Verse 6, this is what's going on with you. And when you are lethargic, when you are complacent, verse 6 is your lot in your Christian day-to-day -day life. Oh, praise God. The grace of God is wonderful. Your position is secure. Your position is in the heavens. That's God's doing. That's none of your doing, friend. You didn't, position, you didn't secure your position in heaven. He did. By going to the cross for you. And he rose from the dead. And he's at God's right hand to be in the presence of God for you. But what we do when we're complacent. We sow a whole bunch. But we don't go very far. It's like one, you know, way back in the 50s I believe it is. Uh, or sometime way back. Billy Graham said, worrying anxiety is a lot like a rocking chair. It gives you a lot to do, but you don't go anywhere. 
And that's what he's talking about here. This is what a lifestyle of just numbness with God produces. Then we're coming back and saying, you know what? Uh, well, maybe we'll get with the temple whenever. Or it just wasn't that important to them. And it was very important to God. Because God says, I'm going to set my name there. This is the place that my sacrifice is going to be instituted there. And you know what? In the millennial temple, we can read that in Zechariah chapter, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47, detailed about the, the temple, the new temple in Jerusalem, the one that Jesus will be frequenting, the millennial temple. Yes, God is concerned. And he's concerned with you and I. Come out from among them, Paul says, and be ye separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And in that context, he's talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are his temple. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There is a lot of understanding we can glean out of these prophets, and yet still remember that this was happening, and God was working in his remnant. And I love it. I think next week, I don't know, sometime close, we're going to get in the part in First uh, Peter where it says, First Peter four seventeen. Now is the time the judgment must begin in the house of God. And if it begin here at us, what's going to be the outcome of those that disobey the gospel of Christ? Wow, I love God. His word is. You know, sometimes you, you just, it leaps off the page. He says again, after he, that description of verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, again, consider your ways. It literally means set your heart on your ways. That's what it literally means. To consider your ways is to set your heart on your ways. David says in the psalm, I considered your ways, therefore I turned my foot under your law. You know, that's so God's saying, set your heart on your ways. Consider it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he writes, Thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. It runs all through the Bible. God loves those whom he chastens, he reproves. Because he wants you to walk in his ways, and he does not want you to be asleep in the light. Wake up, God is saying. I'm preparing my remnant, I'm preparing my bride, I'm coming. Wake up. He says, verse 8, go up in the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You go up the mountains, you get the wood, you build the temple. That's something that, you know, David was pleased with the people that brought all their free will offerings for the temple. God told David, you aren't going to build it because you're a man of bloodshed, but your son will build it. And yet, as a good father, he was laying the foundation for his son to come in, and he was pleased with all the people bringing the free will offerings. They worked, they set their heart, they considered their ways.
He says, I'll take pleasure and I'll be glorified. i got a few minutes. Verse 9, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. <clears throat> then Zerubbabel, the son of Shildiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Now, before I close out tonight, did you did you see what is going on here in verse 12? The remnant. It's always the remnant obeyed the Lord. They heard the voice of the Lord through the prophet. They obeyed him. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. You can go and build the temple to my glory. I know you have opposition. I know you have people that are trying to, to abort that. I know that you have enemies. Listen, I just redeemed you out of captivity. I just delivered you from an evil nation. And I brought you back to your own land. If that weren't enough, I took a wicked king, which Darius wasn't wicked. I don't believe in the fact of the wickedness that had gone before him. But... Let me tell you something, folks. You know how they took the Babylonian Empire? By stealth. These weren't stupid people. Well, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was, was, was toiling with uh, drinking and getting drunk off the... Off the uh, Vessels that they had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar attacked them and they were getting drunk. Remember the writing on the wall and all that? That very night, Belshazzar was killed. Babylon was so successful because their, their waterways were feeding the waters and the health of the city. And that night, through the Medes and the Persians, Persians, they went in by stealth through that, that same venue that they considered their wealth, and no one can ever conquer Babylon. We are the greatest. And they came in by stealth. They killed their king, and they took over. And we have here God using this situation to clear the way for his remnant to go back and start rebuilding the temple. God does deal with lethargic individuals. He does deal with apathy, but it is never pleasant. I'll tell you how I dealt with apathy in my kids. 
with a swift spank on the butt. And that's what God deals with his people because he loves them. People that are complacent and, and seem to have time for anything other than the things of God, God will deal with you. But we see that the remnant is always standing and answering God's call. So in the end of verse 13, I'm with you, says the Lord. I don't want, you know what, that's the greatest thing. I know that my God is with me. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm following him. Let's follow him. That says to us, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. Now, you look in context, that is a universal call from a universal God, spoken carefully and lovingly to his people. We are just coming off the 24th and 25th chapters of Matthew, the Olivet Discourse, about his, his, uh, his people, his remnant, what, what his people are going to experience. So, Lord, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. It's not only to us, but it's also to his remnant. God always works in a remnant. Look at verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shoviel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. All in there. We'll get to chapter 2 next week. But isn't that amazing? If we don't hear the word of God and allow it to sink in and do its energetic work, its life-quickening work in our life, folks, we're wasting our time. You might as well stay home and watch the World Series. You know what I mean? Because God always works through those that are going to say, yes, here I am. Here I am. You know, I love the fact that back when little Samuel was staying with Eli, you know, remember we were back to 1 Samuel, and, and first he hears Samuel, Samuel, and he runs, you know, I can see him because I, you know, one of my younger sons, Mark, was like that at night. He used to sleepwalk a lot. And the guy, the kid, would always be, you know, I'd be sleeping. He always come to my side of the bed. And one night he came inside the bed and said, Dad, what, do you, what, 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 what do you want? So not, nothing more. I'll go back to bed. He'd always give me a little kiss and go back to bed. So I could see little Samuel running to Eli. Eli's like, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Does that three times. Finally, the third time, Eli goes, wait a minute. I think something's going on here. The Lord's speaking to you. The next time he does that... Yes, Lord, here I am. The whole context, remember when we were in there, what that really means is what you're hearing with an expectant, obedient ear. Yes, Lord, here I am. That's the spirit of the prophets. That's what they're saying to the remnant. And we see every time that the remnant is talked about here, they are obedient to Christ. They are not back like the ones uh, in, in verse 2, remember? The time has not come. That the time of the house of the Lord should be built. Ah, you know? It's just not that big a deal to us. Oh yeah, I know that the Lord freed us from captivity. I know that he paved the way. And whatever the, their excuse might be, God's not in excuses. There's no passage in scripture that says, you know what? I'll give you one excuse today. 
God does not deal in excuses. He deals in love and his remnant. And I want to end tonight by reading a passage of scripture that we will be getting into. I believe very highly in this. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Remember this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that's what amazing thing is about the gospel, is it, make, it opens the door and implants new life, the life of God. He is eagerly concerned for his remnant, for his true bride. And as we'll see as we go through Haggai, we get into Zechariah, and especially at the end of Zechariah, we're going to see that the remnant of Israel uh, is going to be miraculously delivered, brought under, under the rod of cleansing, chastisement of the Lord, and brought into his kingdom. And I don't think mere words can say uh, what that's going to be like. But I can tell you one thing. Read, because we're going to go through it many times. Read uh, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11 all the way through that chapter. And if you can read that without being stirred, well, I don't think you can. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the time we have in your word. What a wonderful time it is. And I ask that you would just give us the joy of the Lord. Your word is joyous. It became to me, as Jeremiah said, the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I ate it up. Job said it was more than my necessary food. You, Lord Jesus, said that you are true food and true drink, that when we come to you and abide in you, we will never hunger, we will never thirst. Cause our dull hearts to get the correlation here, to understand that you're speaking to us because you love us. You want to give us life, abundant life, that we may live the life that we have. We possess eternal life now. We are just waiting for our Lord to come back and, 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 and get us, receive us unto himself. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my heart and my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Yet I go away and prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come back and receive you unto myself. And that where I am, there you will be also. Paul says that same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through 18. And he said, ended that and said, comfort one another with these words. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. I wanted to get divorced, but she felt she couldn't get a divorce because I'm Catholic. Is that a godly marriage? I know people that won't get divorced and they want to get divorced because they but they want to stay together and they endure one another because of property reasons. Is that a godly marriage? These people claim no God. 
husbands, let's let's commit, even today, of showing our wives the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the word that um, we don't need to be afraid of. We don't need to be afraid of falling short in our position as husband and wife. What we need to do is to heed the word of God and correct through the power of the Spirit our position as a husband or a wife. Because this is godly living. This is what Peter is putting down, and I thank you, Lord, that this epistle, starting out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, how you elected us, made us your own, and that you bore our sins on your body on the tree, that we may live to righteousness and die to sins. By stripes we are healed, that our godliness and our hope will be surrounded by completely hoping to the end these things in our life. And all of our hope centers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love when you say, Lord Jesus, to us that you didn't leave us alone. If I go away, I will not leave you alone or as orphans. I will come to you. And as I live, you will live also. Those are powerful, life-changing words. Father, I thank you for the marriages here. Whether they're absolutely strong or whether they're struggling, there is an opportunity that we can be strengthened thereby. That Christ not only be lived out on the streets where our closest mate or closest people maybe can't see, but our life can be lived in the home where they can see. We're all to see. I thank you for your life-changing truth. I thank you for the wonderfulness of your indescribable gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I ask it, Lord. Amen.